Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. Tonight's lecture will be by Tariq Ali on the topic The Middle East and Latin America, Resistance and Occupation. I would like to thank the organisers of the Noosa Long Weekend for making Tariq available to us after his events there last week. Tariq's lecture will run for about 50 minutes tonight and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up at the bottom of the aisles here, so please queue at those microphones with your questions. After then, Tariq will be signing his books in the Everest foyer, so up the stairs at the Glee Bookstore. The next Sydney Ideas lecture is on a very different theme. On the 7th of August, a controversial Icelandic scientist, Kari Stephenson, will talk about his work in applying recent discoveries in human genetics in his lecture, Where is the Genetics of Common Diseases Leading Us? And on the 21st of August, we are joined by Stephen Law, a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of London. Stephen will challenge the anti-liberal mythology that has developed across the West and he examines the rise of authority-based moral and religious education in his lecture, The War for Children's Minds. But for tonight, I would like to welcome, from the University of Sydney, Professor Frank Stilwell, who will introduce Tariq Ali and his work. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Meredith. And welcome to you all. Uh, it's a pleasure to see so many of you here tonight. Full house on a rainy evening sounds like an appropriate theme for a drama theatre. Uh, it's also, of course, a pleasure to uh, say these introductory words about uh, Tariq Ali, who I've never met before, but whose name has been familiar to me ever since the uh, 1960s, when I was a postgraduate student at a provincial British university. Um, it was a university some 40 miles out of London, and uh, even at that relatively quiet campus where I was located, there were some revolting students. Uh, the dissent took diverse forms. Uh, the campus where I was, it began at one period about complaints regarding the quality of the meals in the student colleges, but it quickly became uh, a set of concerns focusing on the need for staff-student control of the whole university administration and linked in with sentiments that were more frankly anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. This was, of course, the time of the uh, US war on Vietnam. But it wasn't just in British universities, it was in other places too, most obviously in France where in 1968 the students took to the streets and for a while there it looked as if the prospects of French capitalism were teetering on the brink. And of course in the United States, among other things, then State Governor of California, Ronald Reagan, brought in the state troopers and helicopters in order to uh, deal with student dissent on the UC Berkeley campus. 
uh, Tariq Ali was uh, to emerge in this period as a prominent radical intellectual, as an outspoken critic of the establishment and someone to whom those uh, dissident groups looked uh, for analysis and also inspiration. He wrote about the events subsequently in his book, 1968 and After, which I'm pleased to bring along tonight because it's been sitting gathering dust on my bookshelf for some 30 years. There were, of course, other radical intellectuals at that time feeding in and contributing to this ferment of of ideas and dissent. Uh, Some are now in the British House of Lords. Um, I also reflect that uh, the sons of another dissident intellectual of that era are now in the UK Labour, sorry, New Labour government, proving by their own actions what their father had warned the public about. (laughs) Tariq Ali has stayed on track as a critical public intellectual. He's written uh, a a very large number of books. In addition to 1968 and after, there's the other retrospective on the the 60s, uh, Street Fighting Years, his more recent book on the clash of fundamentalisms, Bush in Babylon, now that's a title to conjure with, Uh, Rough Music, and of course most recently his new book, The Pirates of the Caribbean, subtitled Axis of Hope. This is a commentary on the Bolivarian Revolution, led by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in uh, Bolivia, and of course inspired to a considerable extent by Fidel Castro of Cuba. In the preface to his book, uh, Tariq Ali refers to Michael Oakeshott, the conservative British philosopher, who he quotes as saying that politics is a conversation, not an argument, before he goes on to reassure his readers that he comes from a quite different tradition. And indeed, he does present argument, and I think that's what we can expect to hear tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tariq Ali. Thank you very much for those kind words, Frank. Uh, In fact, when I think back on that period in Britain, I feel it's not only the students who should have been protesting about the bad food, but the entire population. (laughs) Certainly was a massive culture shock for those of us who came from a different tradition to first experience English cooking. (laughs) But we survived. Uh, And it's also interesting that Frank referred to many people from that period who are now in the House of Lords or accepting knighthoods, forgetting everything they, they once stood for, and pretending that they have suddenly seen the light. And when I was writing this new book on Latin America, I remembered a very great poet a German poet from Austria, Erich Fried, who had fled from the Nazis in 1933 and sought refuge in London, and who was a dear friend of mine <coughs> uh, throughout the 60s until he died. 
And Erich wrote this wonderful poem in the late 70s when already you had a process of people abandoning everything they believed in and pretending that they discovered something new. And in memory of Eric Fried, one of the many friends I have of Jewish origin who were totally shocked and horrified by what was being done to the Palestinians in the name of the Second World War and what had happened there. Always hostile to all that he remained, as many others today. But this is what he wrote about those who were changing. Where injustice speaks with the voices of justice and of power, where injustice speaks with the voices of benevolence and of reason, where injustice speaks with the voices of moderation and of experience, help us not to become bitter. And if we do despair, help us to see that we are desperate. And if we do become bitter, help us to see that we are becoming bitter. And if we shrink with fear, help us to know that it is fear, despair and bitterness and fear so that we do not fall into the error of thinking we have had a new revelation and found the great way out or the way in, and that alone had changed us. And you cannot imagine, many of you, how important these words are for someone of my generation who travels around different countries in the world and often runs into people who were once radical and who are now cabinet ministers, government ministers, all certainly all over Western Europe and sometimes even in the United States of America uh, and, of course, Australia as well. Not in the Howard cabinet, but they certainly have been in preceding cabinets. So this is a fairly universal development. Now, what brought this about? That's what interests me. And I think what brought it about was a feeling increasingly from the 80s onwards that it was all over, that the world, you know, in the famous words of Francis Fukuyama, we were at the end of history, by which he didn't mean politics was coming to an end, but in which he said that there were no alternatives possible to the particular form that capitalism had now taken and the political uh, structures that it engendered, and it was foolish wasting time trying to think about anything else. Uh, this is, of course, what Fukuyama uh, argued at great length, and many people, even before he wrote his book, accepted it and felt that because the Soviet Union and that whole world had collapsed, nothing else would henceforward be possible. But it was a very short-term view of history. I remember the famous interview with the former late Chinese Prime Minister Zhou Enlai, carried out by an American <clears throat> journalist, I think it was in the late 70s or early 80s, and he said to Zhou Enlai, what do you think of the French Revolution? And Zhou Enlai said, it's still a bit early to pronounce our verdict. <laughs> in other words, one has to have a long view of history because history has never been a linear process 
of a constant rise. It rises, it falls, things change, they don't remain the same. You have revolutions, you have counter-revolutions, you have restorations, and then suddenly, at a time when no one is expecting it, something changes again. And the world in which we now live is probably more unified in terms of communication and travel than it has ever been before. And so news of change, which in the old days used to spread with some difficulty, I mean, it took two months before the slave, leaders of the slaves in Haiti, heard that there had been a revolution in France which had proclaimed the rights of man, but not the rights of slaves. Uh, and then they used to wait eagerly for news coming from the French capital in Paris, <clears throat> and it helped trigger off an uprising, the first Haitian revolution, about which the great historian C.L.R. James wrote a wonderful book called The Black Jacobins. So history has always been a history of ups and downs, and it was short-sighted and foolish of people to imagine that simply because the United States had triumphed in 91 and their old enemy was finished and they had imploded, nothing else would happen in the world. Because simultaneously, two other things were going on. In South America, <clears throat> you had a continent which was the first laboratory for neoliberalism privatization, deregulation, some of it which you know well because it's happening uh, in Australia. It's been happening in Australia for the last 10, 20 years and it gets worse uh, and they feel there are no hallowed domains at all. Uh, there is no hallowed domain of social provision which is immune or which is guarded or sealed off from private capital. It goes everywhere. But Latin America had already experienced that. The first neoliberal state in Latin America was Pinochet's Chile. That is where the Chicago boys first experimented with all these theories. Subsequently, other Latin American countries were made uh, uh, into laboratories. Argentina, Venezuela, Bolivia, classic example of Jeffrey Sachs going, pushing through IMF policies in Bolivia, creating a tiny rich elite which believed that the lives they were experiencing were the lives of everyone else, actually building and living in these bubbles and then totally amazed when there were four giant uprisings against the system they had created. But in Venezuela, you know, many young people especially agitating and fighting against global injustice imagined that the first revolt against global injustice was in Seattle. And one can forgive them for thinking that because the American media did not report, nor did the Western media, that the first big uprising against the program imposed of cuts in social welfare and expenditure imposed by the IMF on Venezuela created a storm in that country in 1979. And what happened was that you had an insurrection in Caracas and its environs, which became known as the Caracaso, and a 
panicky social democratic government called out the army and ordered them to open fire. 3,000 people died. 3,000 buried in mass graves, disappeared. Even the bodies were disappeared. But people knew how many they'd lost. And that created a panic within Venezuelan society. And inside the army, a group of young officers began to organize meetings and say the army should, the aim of the army is to defend a country against foreign attack. The army has no business killing its own people. And Hugo Chavez, one of these young officers, was astonished to find that there was a lot of support. This move inside the army was reported to the president of the day by the generals who said there's unrest in the army because of what you made us do. And the president said to the generals, what are these officers? What are their ranks? And the reply came, captains and majors, sir. He said, oh, never mind. By the time they become generals, we'll have bribed them into doing what we want. Because that was the tradition. But what they weren't prepared for was that some of these officers weren't prepared to be bribed. And the whole circle of people who set up the Bolivarian movement inside the army remained pretty solid. One of them, a very close comrade of Chavez's, was killed, trapped, ambushed, and killed. Uh, Chavez then developed links with the trade union movement in Venezuela, and they planned a general strike to topple the government for killing the people. Uh, this didn't come off. The army moved, but they were isolated. And then something amazing happened, that Hugo Chavez asked the government, he said, don't blame anyone else, I accept full responsibility. It was a premature insurrection, but it was my fault. But I, uh, uh, and I'm prepared to accept this, you don't need to try me, I'm guilty. But let me explain my guilt to the people. To his astonishment, they allowed him to go on national television to explain his guilt to the people. So he went and said, this is what we tried to do. This is why I, uh, we decided to do it. I'm really sorry I failed. I accept complete responsibility. Don't blame anyone else. So he was locked up for several months. But he was so popular. All the opinion polls showed that a majority of the population backed him. And that began to frighten the oligarchy. And then what happened in 98-99 was he won his first election victory as president and did something quite amazing which no one was used to because this was now the world of the Washington consensus where you were not allowed to challenge the neoliberal order. So what he said, we have, I have been elected by the poor, and I'm going to help them. And there's no other function for a state unless it helps the underprivileged people in its own country. Why bother to exist? And he made it very public and open. We are going to use the oil revenues of our state to transform the living conditions of the poor. And these oil revenues had largely been pocketed by the oligarchy and put into foreign bank accounts. I mean, the figures are astonishing uh, if, you, if, 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 if you add them up as to what happened since oil was discovered in Venezuela to 1998. 
The figures are astonishing. Billions of dollars spirited away abroad. No wonder the country didn't progress. But the very fact that a political leader elected says this challenges Washington because they don't like it. And the reason they don't like it, it's not that they think he's going to destroy capitalism as a whole, but because it encourages other people to do the same. It reignites hope in a world which was largely despairing, and it shows that people who begin to move into activity, political activity, can begin to change things again. It was a slow process, but an extremely important process. So what do they do? They try and topple him. The first time they did it was in 2002 by organizing a military coup against an elected president backed by the entire private media, 90% of it. And what happens? Chavez is arrested. He's locked up. He manages to get a message out saying to the people, I have not resigned, which is what they broadcast on television. I have been arrested. It's a coup d'etat. His daughter, who has been allowed to see him, takes this message out to Fidel Castro in Cuba. Fidel sends him a message back, no heroics, please. We do not want another Allende on this continent. We are still recovering from his execution and killing. Don't do anything provocative. The people will come. And, of course, that's what happened. Once news spread that Chavez had been toppled by a coup backed by the United States in Spain, and a second-rate corrupt businessman had been sworn in as president, this guy was so scared that he had flown to Madrid to be measured for a presidential sash because they didn't want news to leak in Venezuela. So they swear him in. And as he is being sworn in, and as the New York Times is proclaiming that democracy has been enhanced in Venezuela, and as the Constitution is being suspended and all the judiciary arrested and the governors dismissed, we hear in the Western media that democracy is being defended. But then the people who actually defended Venezuelan democracy came from the slums. They poured down from the slums built on the hills that surround Caracas, and half a million of them were marching towards the palace. And at the same time, something else happened. Soldiers began to tell their officers in the barracks, we are not going to go along with this. So you had two simultaneous oppositions, inside the army by the rank-and-file soldiers and inside the ranks of the poor. And the combination did it. And I describe one of these events in the book because it was so dramatic. The general who organized the coup came out of the Miraflores Palace and spoke to the band, the military band that plays the national anthem on ceremonial occasions. And he came out. They didn't know what was going on. And he said to them, the world media is assembled and they are going to come out with me and... I'm going to bring the new president out, and the minute I bring him out, I want you to do what you do when, you know, you, you normally do, play the national anthem. And these young soldiers in their 20s, from peasant backgrounds, dark-skinned, say, General, what new president? We elected Hugo Chavez president of Venezuela. 
what are you talking about? And the general says, you don't ask questions, you obey orders. And he turns to other members of the band. Every single member of the military band, in order to show solidarity with each other, ask him the same question. General, what new president? At which point, exasperated with them, he turns to a 16 or 17-year-old bugler, fresh from the countryside, who plays the bugle. And he says, okay, you forget these guys. When I come out with the new president, you play the bugle. And the bugler, hearing what his fellow soldiers have said, said, excuse me, general, what new president are you talking about? And the general says three times to the bugler, you will play the bugle, that's an order. And the bugler finally takes the bugle and hands it to the general. Says, you're the one who's so keen to play the bugle, you play it. (laughs) Now, the question is not that he said that. The question is... What gives a young soldier the political courage and the political consciousness to talk to a general like this? And it's when you hear stories like this that you feel that even though economic conditions were improving slowly, the election of this government had given the poor in that country a pride. It was their government. They could walk on the streets with their heads held up high, they could identify with this government, and they knew what it was doing. So the coup failed. It failed. And Chavez was back in power. That was the first big defeat for the Washington consensus in Venezuela. Then they did what they did with Allende, tried to paralyze the country by organizing strikes, using the very corrupt oil workers' trade union, in league with the oligarchy to stop the flow of oil, and simultaneously with a strike in the oil industry, doctors, teachers went on on strike to try and bring the government down. And I remember I was in Bolivia soon after that, six months after that, and I asked Hugo Chavez, I said, which was worse for you, the coup or this strike? But the strike was also finally defeated it became very obvious what they were up to. And he said to me, to be very honest with you, I wasn't scared uh, during the coup because I knew they wouldn't be able to get away with it. I was conscious and confident of the support I had, especially among soldiers who were kids like I used to be. But he said the strike frightened me. And the reason it frightened me was because I thought that they would bring the country to a halt, the country would cease to function, and people would despair, that I might, you know, they might isolate us from the people. And then he said something quite astonishing happened. He said a lot of the right-wing press was saying the kids, the unemployed kids who can't get their beer because the the owners of the breweries had gone on strike. It was a boss's strike, by the way. Uh, are going to revolt and rebel. And Chavez said, I got fed up of sitting in the palace and I hopped in a car with three close friends and one bodyguard and went into the slums. And he said, the first person I met was a woman in her late 50s. And she dragged me. She said, Chavez, I'm glad you came. That's how she talked to me. He said, Chavez, come with me. I want to show you something. So she dragged me into her two-room house and she said, look, here's my family. So he met them, six kids, her husband, sitting around a small 
fire on which she was making soup for the family. And she said, have you noticed what I'm burning to make the soup because the electricity wasn't functioning? And he said, no. She said, I have burnt some chairs we had and two doors in the house. That's why you don't see any doors. And she then took him to the bedroom and she said, you see that bed? Tomorrow and day after we will burn that bed. And the day after that, I will burn floorboards and then go and scavenge for wood to try and feed my family. We will manage. Don't worry. We don't want you to give up. Because if you give up now, we are finished. And then he said as he was walking out of this house, incredibly affected and moved, the kids came up to him, the unemployed kids. And they said, screw the beer. Don't give up. Don't give up. And so this, soon there was feeling. So he said, but you know what really was upsetting was that they'd closed the hospitals down. So he said in desperation, he did something he did sort of virtually every day. He rang the Cubans and spoke to Fidel and said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. And he said, within a fortnight... 15,000 doctors had arrived from Cuba. There were already some there. 15,000 doctors arrived from Cuba with Cuban medicines and set up clinics in the poorest areas of the country where there had been nothing before. And the opposition said these are not doctors, they are terrorists. But people, including many supporters of the opposition who got free medical treatment for the first time in their lives, realized who they were. This had a massive impact on public consciousness. A, it showed that you could organize society in a different way. And B, it showed that solidarity from people outside Venezuela was equally important as solidarity inside Venezuela. So the Bolivarian idea of uniting the continent against the old empire became absolutely crucial. And that's when Chavez made his big speech. He said, Simon Bolivar taught us that in order to defeat the Spanish in South America, we have to unite. And today I say to you, in order to defeat the United States and its social, economic, military, and political empire, which they have created through their agents in our part of the world, we have to unite because we can't do it alone. And that had a massive impact, hardly reported in the Western uh, uh, media, but it had a massive impact in South America. And now you've seen a chain of governments which are being elected on the same principles in different conditions. Bolivia, where Evo Morales, an indigenous leader, elected president of his country, an Aymara Indian, Unheard of in Bolivia. This is where the indigenous people barely used to be able to lift their face and stare the Creoles or the light-skinned oligarchs in their face. They were miserable. I remember when I was in Bolivia in 67, the condition of the native people in that country was just so striking. And 60% of the population are indigenous in Bolivia. And they decided that they were going to do something about it. And how did this movement develop? You know, there were many social movements, but one social movement captured the imagination of the whole country. I read in today's Sydney Morning Herald that 
Water prices are going to shoot up by God knows how much a month. Uh, electricity prices, likewise, all these privatized industries. And, of course, the Labor Party and the trade union movement watches idly by because they say, oh, well, so what? Well, Bolivian, the poor in Bolivia couldn't afford to do that. And when they privatized the water in a city called Cochabamba and sold it to the Bechtel Corporation, there was an insurrection. And one reason there was an insurrection was because Bechtel actually got the government to pass a law saying that it was from now on illegal to collect rainwater in receptacles on the roofs of people's houses. Because if you privatize water, you don't own it. Even water which falls from the sky. How can you own it? These are not your rights. These rights have been sold off. That was the thinking. And you had an insurrection. The army came in, shot a kid dead. Many were wounded. But the movement grew and grew and grew till the government had to cave in. The municipality took the water back from Bechtel. Bechtel was expelled, and this victory gave enormous heart to the people of Bolivia. And there was a great Bolivian poet, now alas dead, Jaime Sainz, who wrote about the condition of the native people before these movements began uh, and decided to resist. And it's... Uh, it's a truly, it's a poem which uh, I totally identified with having seen the conditions of the native people. He wrote about them. If you have nothing to eat but garbage, don't say a word. If the garbage makes you sick, don't say a word. If they cut off your feet, if they boil your hands, if your tongue rots, if your spine splits in two, if your soul finds down to nothing, don't say a word. If they poison you, don't say a word, even if your bowels slide from your mouth and your hair stands straight up. Even if your eyes well with blood, don't say a word. If you feel good, don't feel good. If you fall behind, don't fall behind. If you die, don't die. If you're sad, don't be sad. Don't say a word. But they did. I mean, this is, of course, ironic. But they began to speak words, and they began to act, and finally they elected their own president. And I was in Bolivia about four or five weeks ago, and you can see the palpable change in the way the Indian population walks now, and how they look at you, and the confidence. It's slow, but it's coming. And the oligarchs, the Creoles, light-skinned, used to exercising power, used to treating people as if they were nothing, not even human beings, are now in a complete state of panic. And on their cell phones, I saw this with my own eyes, they sent pictures of Evo Morales, a bullet, you know, doctored photographs, photo montages uh, from their base in Santa Cruz. Morales shot through the head, blood pouring down his face, and behind on a wall a slogan, Viva Santa Cruz. That's the capital of the Bolivian oligarchy. They cannot bear it that a progressive leader 
who is also indigenous and proud of his being indigenous, has been elected president. All the opinion polls carried out by the United States and Bolivia show Evo Morales on 70%. That's his popularity. The last time we heard, Bush was under 20. <laughs> so you have these changes which are taking place, and then you have the big advance which took place in Ecuador with Rafael Correa being elected president, again after a long social movement in that country. And I met the, the uh, minister for Ecuadorian minister for culture, who is an Afro-Ecuadorian. And I said to him, I said, you know, excuse my ignorance, I've not been to Ecuador as yet, but what is the size of the Afro-Venezuelan population who were taken there once as slaves? He said, there are three million of us. It's a very large sum. And he said, of course, people are shocked to see a black face on Ecuadorian television. Uh, they're used to seeing football stars. But he said, as you can see, I'm old with white hair. So when they see me, often I'm stopped in the street and they say, who are you? We saw you on television. And he says, I'm the new minister for culture of your country and I'm a poet. So these changes which are taking place are not of the order of the Cuban revolution which took place in the middle of the last century. They're very different because the world we live in is different. But these events taking place have broken the isolation imposed on the Cubans by the American blockade. For the first time in its entire history, the Cuban revolution is no longer isolated in Latin America. They're treated as normal human beings. They travel. And even the governments in Latin America, if this is my axis of hope, my axis of despair includes Brazil and Chile. But even the leaders of Brazil and Chile, they follow the Americans on their social and economic policies, not always on their foreign policy. I'm about to sort of be slightly indiscreet, but I, once Chavez was upbraiding me a tiny bit, saying you're too hard on Lula. And I said, I'm not hard on him. I go and see the landless peasants who were promised the moon before the elections and who have got nothing. So I'm not that hard on him. All I called him once in public in Brazil was that he was a tropical Blair, <laughs> which he probably took as a compliment. <clears throat> Uh, but Chavez then sort of had to confess to me, he said once I was talking to him and I lost my cool. <clears throat> and I said, you know what's wrong with you, Lula? And he said, what? He said, the Americans will never try and overthrow you. <laughs> but despite the arguments that go on, the Brazilians have not allowed the Americans to force them into isolating Morales or Chavez. They've been very careful not to. Nor have the Chileans at the present moment. The only government in Mexico which acts totally and shamelessly for the United States, it's the Mexican government. And we know why this government exists, because it rigged the elections. You know, when there's an election in Venezuela, you have the European Union, you have the Carter Foundation, you have everyone there watching to see if they can find something. Carter went for the last election, 
And he gave a public statement to his enormous credit. The former president of the United States said publicly in Caracas, this is the freest and fairest election I have ever seen. And one assumes when he said that, he was also referring to his own country. Uh, but when they ask to go and watch the elections in Mexico, they are not permitted. The Mexicans suddenly become very conscious of their sovereignty. Oh, it's a threat. Why should we allow foreigners to come and observe the elections? So they rig them. They rig them. And Obrador lost when he shouldn't have lost the election. Uh, so this change, you know, can be impeded but it is going on. And the impact it's having globally is of some interest. It's of some interest. Because when Chavez first visited the Middle East, he was interviewed for one hour on Al Jazeera, the television station which the United States loved to bomb in the interests of democracy and fair play and diversity. And they bombed it in Afghanistan, and they bombed it in Iraq, and they killed their chief correspondent in Iraq, Tariq Ayyub, which we saw being done because he was targeted, because they didn't want alternative images from the war to be seen on television. But Chavez was interviewed on uh, television in, in, on Al Jazeera, and they always do that. They put an Arab voiceover because people don't like reading subtitles. And the producer of Al Jazeera who did the interview said to me, I met him several months later, he said that that interview got us more emails than anything else we've ever shown. And he said, as you know, we show a great deal. And I said, like, how many emails? He said, tens of thousands. He said, 36 million people watched it. And we got tens of thousands of emails, and we had to hire people to read and reply to them, not that it was difficult. But I, I said, he said 98% of those emails, in one form or the other, asked one question. When is the Arab world going to produce a Chavez? Because they feel the lack of leadership very strongly in that region. And if you compare the hope that has been ignited in Latin America with the conditions that exist in the Middle East today, the contrast couldn't be brighter. Well, it couldn't be greater. And one reason for this, of course, is the impact of the occupation. Yeah, we were told that the occupation of Iraq was necessary. Forget all the lies they said about weapons. I don't want to repeat that because everyone knows they were lies. Howard knows he lied. Blair knows he lied. Bush knows he lied. They all lied to try and convince a skeptical public to go to war. But the other reason, after their lies were exposed, they said, anyway, we got rid of a dictator. Yeah. You had no right to do that. That is a right that only belongs to the people of a country. That's why the United Nations came into being, because Hitler and Mussolini used to say between the two world wars, we are going to remove these people from power. Regime change. The UN was created to prevent preemptive strikes in regime change by big powers. But you, they defied all that. That doesn't matter to them. But the th truth is, that conditions in Iraq today under the occupation are worse than they were under Saddam. 
The museums have been wrecked and robbed. Antiquities dating back to the times when civilization was born in that part of that, of that world. Mesopotamian civilization are being stolen, wrecked, destroyed by all sorts of people. The health and education system doesn't function. Five million Iraqis have fled to neighboring countries to seek refuge. At least a million Iraqis have died since this country was occupied and the Western world watches on and is told this is all fine. And as, if, and as if that weren't enough, as if that weren't enough, we are told that the interest, the Western world is really trying to help solve the Palestinian question. Look, the Palestinian issue could have been solved many years ago if the United States had wanted it solved. But one key element in U.S. foreign policy is its unremitting, uncritical backing of Israel and whatever it does, and the utilization of Israel. You know, when the war in Lebanon happened not so long ago, after the Hezbollah kidnapped two Israeli soldiers, the scale of the bombing of Lebanon and the way in which it was planned was so detailed that I instinctively knew, and I was in Brazil, it so happens, and said at a big festival, the excuse, they were waiting for an excuse. This war had been planned many months ago. They were waiting for an excuse. And even people, liberal people, said, ah, oh, no, no, do you know Hezbollah provoked them? I said, no, we will find out. Now we've had an official Israeli inquiry, and the Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert has said we had planned that war four months before the soldiers were captured. So they were waiting for an excuse to go and take out Hezbollah, wipe it out as a force, which is why when it became clear they couldn't do that. And Hezbollah's resistance pushed them back, and the whole world and many of the European countries were saying ceasefire, immediate ceasefire. Bush and Blair told the Israelis, have another week. See if you can do it. We'll give you another week. This is the world in which we live, a world of double standards, a world where the West and its major leader, the United States, act in their own interests and pretend they are acting in the interests of humanity. All empires have done that historically. And where we now see a situation where the late Edward Said used to say that a Palestinian civil war is a permanent twinkle in the eyes of Israeli generals. They'd been trying to trigger off something like this for ages. That is why Arafat broke with them, because whatever his other weaknesses, he refused to do that. That's why they isolated Arafat, cut off his electricity, waited for him to die till Abbas emerged, who was their man, and they've now bullied him, pushed him, cajoled him, offered him bribes to deny the elected government of Palestine, which is Hamas. Elected in a free and fair election, but they will not accept that election result because it goes against them. Any election that produces leaders which are not in the interests of the United States is not to be accepted. So democracy itself is a fig leaf. They use it when they want, and they disregard it when they want. 
and these tragic events, you cut off money to the Palestinians, you treat the Palestinian authority, pathetic though it is, as if it were a second-rate NGO, you wait till Gaza reaches boiling point, and then you unleash the PLO against Hamas and hope for the best. And the PLO is finished, in my opinion, and together with it, I fear Palestinian national aspirations. And the only future for Palestine now is a one-state solution. I, I was asked by some of the people at Hamas, what would you do in our place? And I said, I tell you what I would do. I said, I wish you had the political guts to do it. I would stand up and say, the Palestinian Authority no longer exists. It's an Israeli authority and has been for, uh, ever since the Palestinian Authority was created. Why prolong the farce? Why pretend what is, isn't? Dissolve the Palestinian Authority. Say we are all citizens now of the entity. We don't care what you call it, but we are all citizens now. That's what you should do. Throw the ball in their court. Because ultimately... That is the only solution, a single-state solution, to create a single Israel-Palestinian state in which Jews, Muslims, Christians, whoever, are equal citizens. Why should one ethnic group be prioritized? Because of a tragedy which took place in Europe during the Second World War. And what people refuse to recognize and accept because this lobby is very strong, is that the Palestinians have become the indirect victims of the Judeo side of the Second World War. They weren't responsible for it. It was a European problem for which they have been forced to pay a hefty price. So we have a critical situation in Palestine, and we have a critical situation in Iraq. And Iraq now is a divided land, and how they are going to get out is not a big debate because it's simple. They will just get out when they have to try and leave some bases behind. Uh, but the, what will remain of Iraq? They have, you know, from their own point of view, they've handed the bulk of Iraq to the Iranians on a platter. That is what they've done. So the balkanization of Iraq is a real possibility. The Turks won't like the Kurds becoming even a semi-autonomous state and have already moved their troops up to the frontiers. So you make a decision which destabilizes that region and then you wait and you see the suffering which has been imposed. And most people, I have to be honest, in the West don't care. It's not shown on their media except when something particularly outrageous happens. Iraq doesn't feature too much in the news, though there's a war going on. People are dying every single day. American casualty rates are also mounting. The American networks do show this. But all the countries involved in the war, including Australia, Iraq is more or less absent from the news bulletins. Why? Doesn't it matter? Do we attach more importance to one life and not another? And the answer is yes, we do. And that has now created a complete mess, religious tensions, ethnic tensions, the emergence now of strong religious groups, some of them backed by the West, others are fighting the West. And this is not a model which can be presented to the world like the Latin American model as something which we, you know, could be copied. 
or we could learn from. Because while they fight very courageously in these countries, they don't have a social vision. And there's something which can't appeal to the United States or the citizens of the United States who are hostile to the war. But they will never identify with those fighting them because of who they are. In Latin America, it's different. You have a large Hispanic population in the United States, and many, many people can identify with it. So the question is, how is this world going to move forward, if it is? Latin America is one example, which is why I've called it uh, an, an axis of hope. And it's a something many, many people in the Arab world instinctively recognize. By the way, what I don't want to go on about tonight, but apart from these occupations, you have another section of the Arab world where democracy doesn't matter. The two Arab countries closest to the United States are Saudi Arabia and Egypt. No one in their right minds could describe the Saudis as a democracy. I think it's even sometimes exaggerated to call them a monarchy or a kingdom. One has to invent a special word for them, and the one I've invented is a kleptocracy. Because <laughs> one family has been given the franchise to steal the country's wealth and do with it what is want. There's no big difference between the state treasury and the treasury, private treasury of this family. Egypt is a moth-eaten dictatorship run by one guy who's, you know, well past his prime, um, and used now for rendition. If you want to torture someone, send them to Egypt. They're good at torturing. Or send them to Romania and Bulgaria. They can torture. Uh, we can torture in Guantanamo, but we might be caught if we do it on our own territory. So do it elsewhere where it's not a problem for people and where news can be kept quiet. Egypt is used constantly to torture uh, uh, prisoners sent by the United States to extract information from them. It's not a good picture in that Arab world today. Despite the fact that things are going wrong, seriously wrong for the United States, one can't present that as a social vision. Now, I am not a great one for predictions, but I want to read out to you. I, I do envy people sometimes who have the capacity to make predictions which turn out to be right historically. And these people can come from the right or the left or non-political. And one such prediction was made by a Spanish grandee in the 18th century, the Marquis of Aranda, who, watching the rise of new liberation movements and upheavals in South America, wrote one of the most prescient and far-sighted letters ever written by a nobleman and a courtier to his king, uh, suggesting some changes um, in the situation, or he said we will lose everything. I just want to read this out to you. This is the Count of Orenda. Uh, he wrote this letter in 1783, six years after the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And this is what he said to his king. It's a letter to the king of Spain. Great possessions cannot be held forever. The present situation is rendered more difficult by the enormous distances which hampers the dispatch of help. 
by the slowness of the authorities and the selfishness of the government. That pygmy republic, the United States of America, which today needs France and Spain to exist at all, will one day grow into a colossus, will forget all the benefits it has received at the hands of both powers, and will dream only of might. The freedom of conscience, the growth of a huge population in that vast territory, the advantages of the new government will draw workmen and peasants from all countries, for men pursue success. And the time will come when we shall painfully feel the tyranny of this giant. It will then attempt to get Florida and the Gulf of Mexico into its power will hamper our trade with New Spain and endeavor to conquer it since the two countries are strong and adjacent while we shall hardly be able to defend it. These apprehensions, sire, are only too well-founded unless their realization is forestalled by other yet graver changes in our parts of America. Everything will combine to urge our subjects to fight for their independence at the earliest opportunity. We should therefore give up all our possessions, retaining only Cuba and Puerto Rico in the north and a small part of the south to provide us with ports for our trade. To realize this great idea in a way worthy of Spain, three princes should be made kings of Mexico, Peru, and the Costa Firma, your majesty, of course, receiving the title of emperor. Trade should be built up on terms of perfect equality. The four nations must feel themselves bound by an alliance for their common welfare. Since our industry is unable to provide Southern America with all necessities, France must send them. England, on the other hand, must be rigorously excluded. <laughs> now, what a far-sighted memorandum if you think about this. And what is going to happen to the world when this century, 21st century, comes to an end? Well, I want to end with one or two things on this. One, that the United States is still the strongest country in the world and the only empire and believes it can have its way everywhere. But in some ways, and it can, and it's being challenged, which is also fine, but in some ways the most significant change that has taken place is the alteration to the world market and the balance of the world market, which we have seen with the rise of China as a major capitalist power not so far from where you all are. That this emergence of China as the workshop of the world is reminiscent of Britain in the 19th century during the Industrial Revolution. With this big difference, that China is the largest country in the world and Britain was amongst the smallest. So how is this development in China, and if you add to it the fact that Japan, once again after going through a crisis, is the second most powerful economy in the world today, how is this going to affect the world? Well, without any doubt, it's going to have a major impact. And war games plotted in the Pentagon talk about, endlessly talk about, how can we balkanize China? Do we use the Taiwan option or the Tibet option? 
The Chinese are, of course, fully aware of it. If I am, you can bet your pants they are. Uh, and are, are also thinking, but this big shift that has taken place is bound to have a political impact because what it is doing for the first time since the Industrial Revolution is shifting the focus of economic power from the West to the East. That is what is happening, which is why far-sighted and visionary politicians in your country, if that is not a contradiction in terms, <laughs> instead of hanging on to the coattails of the United States or being permanently on their knees or being happy with being deputy sheriffs forever and are thinking actually about the future of this giant country with a small population, would begin to look in another direction because the future of Australia, whether people like it or not, is linked up with the Far East and with a strong economy. Sooner or later, there will be a Far Eastern bank. The Latin Americans, Chavez is thinking of setting up a bank for Latin America. When the Japanese suggested an Asian bank, they were put down very strongly. But these ideas will emerge again. And the shift in this pattern will, of course, weaken the Euro-American axis, which dominates the world so completely today, and many things which we think inconceivable will then become possible. So uh, it's not the case that everything is settled uh, forever. The world is not like that. Changes are taking place. And, you know, sometimes we can't even predict the speed of these changes. And sometimes we get the changes wrong. I remember when the publishing house which published this book was working on the cover of these Pirates of the Caribbean, the new left, the news came that Fidel Castro was very ill and could die. So there was big panic and they rang me up and I said, don't worry, just put a halo around his head. <laughs> and when the Cuban ambassador came to the book launch in London, he said, well, this turned out to be a bit premature, didn't it? <laughs> So we can all make mistakes, and the world goes on, but we shouldn't despair. We shouldn't despair. Latin America is a long way from Australia, but many of the things that are being discussed in that part of the world have a real relevance here. And so hope, you know, always remains and should remain, and even in bad times when it's difficult, an important part of our thinking, because a world in which utopia is totally proscribed from the map is not a world worth living in, and the Latin Americans have shown us that in a very, very strong way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now we come to the uh, stage in the evening where it's your opportunity to ask uh, questions of Tariq Ali. There's two microphones, so if you want to come down to those microphones, we'll take quick questions uh, for about 20 minutes. Please. I'll, I'll kick off. Trafalgar Square, 40 years ago. Hi. Liberal, liberation theology, is it still a factor in Latin America? 
And point two, I hear a lot about fundamentalist Pentecostalism down there. Is this a CIA plant <laughs> or the, the Southern Baptists? Or Can you tell me anything about the, um, the power of religion in Latin America today? Thank you. Well, <clears throat> it, the, the religion is still there, of course, and as you know, you had throughout the 70s and its 80s uh, groups within the Catholic Church which were extremely radical. Uh, the Colombian priest Camilo Torres was the shining example of that, but there were groups in Brazil, there were bishops in Salvador who fought against what was going on in that country and were wiped out. I mean, the bishop in Salvador was killed, and then the Catholic Church fell into the hands of the Opus Dei faction, and they expelled quite a lot of liberation theologists from the church. And the expulsion of these liberation theologists broke the links, not completely, but to a large extent in many of these countries between the poor and the church, which had existed, uh, and which were political links. And so you saw with the weakness of the church, you saw a whole group of evangelists and evangelical groups, Protestant, uh, going out to try and make up for that and doing similar sort of work but without the same political ideology or thought. So it's still there, but I would say it's not as dominant as it used to be. The largest movement in Brazil, the landless peasants movement, is not, a, not led by priests. It's led by a very gifted uh, leader, Jao Pedro Stedile. Uh, the, move, the Bolivarians in Venezuela, not religious. The uh, 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 movement for socialism in Bolivia, not religious. So it's, there has been a shift away from that to a certain extent, though this doesn't mean that people have stopped believing. I know you'll partly answer uh, some of my question. But, you'll have uh, to speak up a bit. Uh, I know you partly answered some of uh, my question here, but uh, taking into consideration the status quo and um, the latest development in the uh, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what is your um, perspective about like a, geopolitic, a geopolitical map for the Middle East uh, bearing in mind um, the inevitable emergence of uh, new Islamic entities um, as the only alternative for um, corrupt regimes in the Middle East. Uh, <clears throat> well, this is true, what you say, that they are emerging <clears throat> as the only alternative, but it's, there is a historical reason for that as well that throughout the Cold War years, they were the allies of the West, the religious groups, which one shouldn't forget. Uh, I remember when we used to, you know, I was still a student in Pakistan, and the Jamaat-e-Islami, which was a religious group, would say to us, Islam and socialism is incompatible. We used to have a little thing to tell them. We used to say, which is the largest Muslim country in the world? And they would say, Indonesia. You say, which is the largest communist party in the world outside the communist world? They wouldn't reply. We would say Indonesia, where you had a million and a half members of a mass communist party, wiped out, just wiped out, without too many complaints. Uh, and the people who helped wipe out, lots of people tried to escape, went to their villages, and religious vigilantes in these villages were mobilized by the military with the full backing of the CIA and pointed out 
people who had to be killed. There was a big bloodbath in Bali, by the way, interestingly enough, with religious vigilantes in Bali going to the homes of large numbers of communists and socialists and saying, these are atheists, socialists, communists, wipe them out. So this vacuum that was created didn't just happen automatically or overnight. It was worked at. The irony now is that the United States, who worked very closely with these people to crush one enemy, have now declared they are the new enemy. Now, I will just say one thing, because this is a very important question you've asked. Islam, like most other religions, doesn't simply have one grouping within it. It's a palette with lots of different colors. And you can have Islamic groups which are not too different from Christian democracy or Christian democrats. Uh, you can have the mosque playing the same role which the Roman Catholic Church plays, for instance, in parts of Australia, where it's sometimes difficult to get elected unless you're a Roman Catholic. You, can, you have that within Islam as well. You also have extreme groups like Al-Qaeda, but the people in power in Turkey today are Islamists, and they are NATO's Islamists, very pro-NATO, and NATO is very pro-them. So there is no overall picture which can be given, and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, quite honestly, if elections were permitted in Egypt, they would come to power, and they would not be too different from the Turkish Islamists, except on questions like Palestine, where they would argue back. But in terms of the social structure, they would try and deal with the corruption. But they could easily work with the United States, uh, which they've done before. So one shouldn't get too worked up about it, but that is unfortunately the situation we find in the Muslim world, where secular nationalism, secular politicians, giant movements have been wiped out, and it will take a long time for them to revive again. But perhaps one thing that will revive them is actually having an elected religious government of some sort to contend with. Your speech was uh, quite inspiring, and you inspired us with the examples of Venezuela, and you also mentioned Cuba. Both of these are fairly um, command economies, certainly Cuba and perhaps Venezuela is heading that way as well. But uh, I wanted to ask you about other alternatives you may have seen in Latin America. So my experience is in Cuba. Still, people are very poor, scrounging for basic necessities. A lot of that is because of the American blockade. My tax dollars at work. But just with Venezuela has the uh, advantage of a lot of oil, so they can afford to centralize things. But we know that countries that are very rich in oil often do not end up so democratic, except for uh, Norway. So I wonder, um, if you think about Argentina after the... Um, currency crisis, people were building alternatives on a smaller scale to American hegemony, and whether you've uh, seen other cases like that in Venezuela or elsewhere as opposed mm. to just the centralization of the economy. Mm. Well, look, Venezuela and Cuba are very different. Uh, Cuba is a command economy. Uh, but that is the way it developed, and it unfortunately learned some bad habits at a time when it was forced to, uh, you know, uh, have Brezhnev's bear, bear hug which I write about in this book. But the Venezuelan economy is not a command economy in that sense. It's a mixed economy. 
Uh, Venezuelan capitalism, whether we like it or not, is doing pretty well, actually, which is one reason they've been relatively quiescent. Uh, what the government is doing in Venezuela is doing, in a sense, in very different conditions, what social democratic parties did all over Western Europe after the Second World War and in Australia basically use the power of the state to push through social reforms to shift the uh, disparities in wealth and redistribute some of that wealth. It's a redistributionist government, and it's this redistribution which is not permitted by the Washington Consensus. As for Argentina... Lots of very interesting things happened there. I was there after the collapse. Factory occupations, workers' management of factories, picateros, big general assemblies in, even in the middle-class areas of Buenos Aires because the Argentinians always thought they were one you know, a bit ahead of the rest of Latin America because they were all Europeans. Argentina is the one country where they virtually exterminated all the indigenous population. Even the Australians couldn't quite do that, though some are trying. Um, but they did it in Argentina to the extent that... Uh, uh, even Charles Darwin, who believed in the survival of the fittest and racist theories, was shocked, horrified by what he saw in Argentina. But anyway, that's another story. But what I'm saying is that the shock that they had collapsed as a result of following IM policies went very deep and did radicalize layers of the population. The problem was that they couldn't elect someone or a party or a president which could move things forward. And I'm afraid you do need power at the level of the state, even to push through local reforms. So most of these groups, good though they were, are on the decline. Power is in the hands of a Peronist Kirchner, who's not a sort of evil guy by any means, and actually has used the movements to get away um, you know, to get out of paying the whole debt which that country owed. But it's not something which has resulted in, you know, sort of fundamental changes in Argentina. It's like the Zapatistas in Mexico, very wonderful people. And what they did in their local area was good, but they couldn't develop a national strategy. And that is a problem today. You have to develop a national strategy on the level of the state and try and take that state. If you don't, you can be isolated and defeated. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could comment on the state of like occupation and resistance in Afghanistan, mm. um, and also how the anti-war movements around the world that you come in contact with are dealing with this. Because I'm from the Stop the War Coalition in Sydney, and in the lead-up to the federal election here, while there's a division about the war in Iraq, the yeah. war in Afghanistan, there's consensus. It's a noble war. So if we could hear. Well, I mean, very briefly, because you know we don't have time to discuss this in detail, but <clears throat> the reason for the war on Afghanistan was very simple. It was basically a war of revenge. And Bush said that the aim of the war was to capture Osama bin Laden dead or alive and wipe out al-Qaeda. And if one is to take him seriously, which one shouldn't, <laughs> uh, one would say that they had lost because they haven't succeeded in doing that. And the only al-Qaeda leaders they've caught, they've captured through police activities, not through the war uh, in that region. But what has now happened is, as a result of the occupation of Afghanistan, they have, you know, when the Taliban was first toppled, if one's brutally honest, 
Large numbers of people in Afghanistan weren't too upset. It was not a popular regime, except in one part of the country, and even there it wasn't totally popular. But with a foreign occupation, the Afghans are very obstinate people, as the Russians found out when they occupied Afghanistan. They have this strange belief that no foreign power should occupy their country. <laughs> and they, they believe it very deeply. And some British journalists were shocked when the Afghans in a village were boasting to them. You remember, they said, you know, not far from here, we defeated the British in the 19th century twice. And the journalist said, what do you mean you? He said, oh, our forefathers did it then, and we're going to do it again now. So in Afghanistan today, what we are witnessing is the failure of this occupation to deliver anything to the Afghans. That's the problem for them now that they live in a neoliberal world and they can't do things in Afghanistan which they couldn't do in their own countries. It costs $5,000 to build a small house in Afghanistan which could house a family of five. They haven't built them. Instead, the new elite, which they've transplanted in many cases from the United States, Hamid Karzai and his cronies, are taken all the prime land in Kabul, building houses, corrupt to the core. Karzai's brother is one of the biggest drug and arms smugglers in the country, and people know that. Then together with that, you have helicopter raids, bombing raids, and civilians are beginning to die in rather large numbers. Just look at the press over the last six months, and you will see Afghan casualties have arisen. Even Karzai was forced two days ago to say the level of civilian deaths is too high because he knows what will happen to him. He can always leave Afghanistan and become a model in Paris and model his shawls. But most people in Afghanistan can't do that. They can't do that. And so it's creating problems. It's not a good situation. The Taliban is now becoming an umbrella organization for fighting the occupation. And unfortunately, it is going to get popular. I mean, I just predict that. It's bound to happen because no one else is stopping them. And then last week, the United States went and bombed a part of Pakistan and killed Pakistani civilians. So they're destabilizing the one country in the region which is their ally. It's a, it's a mess, you know. Uh, and we have to be very hard-headed about it, but this occupation in Afghanistan isn't working. If they'd gone in and built schools and hospitals, etc., etc., who knows? But they couldn't do that. And so the whole thing is imploded. You the place is packed with Western NGOs, Western troops who live on such a high level compared to the native population. I mean, the amount of food and goods and commodities exported to keep these Western armies in Afghanistan living in the way to which they've become accustomed is seen by the local population. After all, they can't keep it a secret, and they react accordingly. Hi, um, my name is Miguel from Latin America. You said, um, or you compared what is happening in Latin America and the Arab world. And I would like if you can expand the reasons why um, there is a lack of social vision in the Middle East or in the Arab world. Yes, yes, you can expand some ideas, some factors or reasons. Thank you. I totally understand your question. I'm sorry. That's right. What is the lack of... Social vision in, in the Arab world compared oh, to Latin America. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Uh, with great respect, I thought I'd explain that at some length. Um, <clears throat> uh, so I'm not going to repeat it. But 
the fact is that most of the social visionary movements in the Middle East were wiped out and that ultimately the only people capable of leading the resistance were religious groups and their vision uh, is limited. And one reason it's limited is because they see things too exclusively through uh, religious spectacles. I mean, I don't know how many of you follow Osama bin Laden's writings, but his position, for instance, in Saudi Arabia uh, is to privatize the oil resources. Well, that will be music to the ears of anyone in the United States, which is why I'm saying there's a lot of confusion within this current on what is the social economy and the political economy which they would like in this part of the world. They all talk about social justice, but concrete measures on how to implement that are sadly lacking. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you to compare the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela with social democratic experiments such as, like, for example, you have compared it already with the Cuban Revolution. But, uh, like, for example, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's government in Pakistan was toppled, but Chavez could not be brought down by the same methods. Does it mean, does it signify that there is something qualitatively different in the electoral politics of the left which distinguishes it from the classical social democracy? Uh, Well, it's a social democracy which is of a very special type, which has been brought to power certainly through democratic election victories but also gigantic mass movements. Now, you're talking about Pakistan in the 70s. You had a mass movement which got rid of the dictatorship and politicians were elected. Uh, But what these politicians did after they were elected, that's where the problem lay. When Bhutto was captured by the army in a coup and executed, no one came out onto the streets, you know. And one reason they didn't come out onto the streets is because they didn't feel... The one reason is they were scared. But people sometimes can brave all that. The main reason is they didn't feel they had a stake in the regime because the key thing which was expected from Bhutto was large-scale land reforms which would wipe out the landlords as a social layer and begin the process of modernizing the country. He didn't do that. Um, At the same time, there were lots of things he did which weren't good. So it was a completely different uh, experience. We are now living in a very different time from the 60s and 70s anyway. Uh, And so even these challenges, though they are limited in some ways, are very important because they show the rest of the world it can be done. It can be done if people are active and if good politicians are produced. I want to take you up for a moment to say uh, we're scheduled to finish at 8 o'clock this evening. I see the queue is not getting any shorter. Um, so I... Okay, thanks. Um, you mentioned something earlier which I think is a big factor in making people feel like they can't resist the kind of world order that's coming down from the United States, which was despair and bitterness. But I think another huge factor is fear, and we're seeing that... In New South Wales at the moment, George Bush is coming to Sydney in September and the state Labor government has announced new laws of excluding people from the city, allowing the military into the street to police demonstrators. Um, So I just wondered if you could touch on that. By the way, everyone, uh, protest against George Bush. (laughs) 
September the 8th, 10 a.m. at Sydney Town Hall. Well, you know, there is uh, a feeling of solidarity on the part of the Western elites that George Bush must never be allowed to get too close to the people. (laughs) So they make sure he never sees them. Uh, This happens wherever he goes, and the Americans insist on it for security reasons. Whereas previous American presidents, including Nixon and Lyndon Johnson, used to go on tours and used to be, you know, stoned all over Latin America and spat upon, and they took it in good spirit because they knew what they were doing. Uh, But not these guys. They don't like dissent, and they would like to uh, uh, rub it out. Blair's exactly the same. He always goes to events which have been organized, carefully organized, orchestrated, so when it's shown on television, it appears spontaneous, but it never is. These are politicians, Bush, Blair, these guys are politicians of a new breed, not used to actually talking to people, whereas the old politicians, good or bad, were used to speaking to large crowds and audiences. These guys don't do it because they can't. Okay. Could you be brief? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, from the Australian Venezuela Solidarity Network, and you signed a statement a few weeks ago in solidarity with the Venezuelan government against what can only be described yeah. as a media war against it by the international media, yeah. supposedly for attacking freedom of speech. Yeah. Like, I wonder if you could describe that media war and also how that ties in to attempts by the US to isolate Venezuela. Well, you obviously know what I think about it, and you want me to tell everyone else, but we don't have time today, so we'll take the next question. Um, You were talking about, um, in uh, Bolivia, indigenous leaders um, bringing up the sort of um, self-respect of the indigenous community there. Um, I was brought up in the Caribbean where there was a strong black power movement, and that, is, that also brought a very strong self-identity of blackness and, um, and self-image. Whereas here in Australia, we have a situation where the indigenous culture is almost decimated. You see no one in the media represented, um, in the education system. Um, they're very much marginalized. And now we, all, we have like a second country up in the Northern Territory where um, basically there's a whole new set of laws that uh, doesn't apply to anyone else in Australia. But uh, there. Can you just sort of, um, what I'm really trying to get at is uh, self-respect, self-identity um, of indigenous peoples um, being given, you know, promoting it through democracy. Well, look, this is, as you know, better than me a question we can't discuss in an answer-and-question session. It's a very, very fundamental question in this country. Uh, And many times I've been to Australia since the 70s, I've always noticed the big unspoken factor about what happened in Australia. People now know what happened. Uh, But, yeah, I know. But, you know, it's not something we're going to be able to solve tonight. It's an appalling situation. It's an extremely bad situation. But you can't blame the victims of this crisis uh, uh, for what what is happening in their communities. I mean, even someone like Malcolm Fraser, when asked about it a few days ago, said 
its jobs and education and political representation is what is needed to move this community forward. And he's absolutely right on that. And it's appalling to me that Labour is so desperate to come to power at any cost is incapable of making these obvious points, that it's not going to work if they do it. If they, if they do it in a brutal, legalistic way, and they themselves will forget about it after the next election. It's basically something you feel is being whipped up to show we're trying to do something, and, you know, we are tough, and we are perfectly capable of denying people's rights in the greater interests of the children, but you will forget about it, and it won't even solve any of the real problems that that community is confronting. Yeah, now, we can't go on. I'm yeah. sorry. Hi. Um, you were talking about a lack of a united front in the Arab world and because the secular movements were wiped out. As someone from Iran, I can really relate to that. But also living in Iran, one thing I noticed was the creeping women's revolution where women would resist in any way they could. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about the potential of women's rights and women's oppression possibly triggering that sort of united front because they're the only group that seems to be oppressed both inside and outside their countries? Well, I think Iran, you know, again, I can't go on about it at length. It's difficult to discuss everything, but Iran is one of those Muslim countries with a very strong cultural tradition. Uh, and this is a cultural tradition that predates Islam. And everywhere Islam went, because it rose very quickly, unlike Christianity. Within a hundred years, Islam had conquered two large empires in China and the uh, Atlantic coast in Spain and Portugal. Uh, it made policy on the, on the hoof. And it, many, many customs it took from local peoples. And Iran is a case in point. I mean, the Noros, the Spring Festival, is still celebrated even though the clerics are in power. And this is not exactly a religious festival, but it's a thing which goes back thousands of years. So I'm, you know, less pessimistic about Iran than almost any other part of that world, and I think we will be in for surprises. And the other big thing about Iran is that 75% of the population is under 30 years of age. And then if you add to that that what is being produced culturally in that country is pretty remarkable. The Iranian cinema industry, which has been triggered off by the changes there, is quite amazing. The Iranians have produced movies for the last 10 years now, which are way superior to quite a lot of stuff being produced in, in, in Western Europe, leave alone Hollywood. So that gives you a sense of hope and what is possible. The question is, what is the movement that will crack the hold of the clerics in Iran? And the situation at the moment is very serious because the United States have been threatening them, and that strengthens the clerics. It doesn't allow space for women, for other segments uh, of the population in that country to demand it, but it will happen. I am confident, and I think Iranian women will play a very large part in it uh, because all the indications coming out of Iran suggest that. Um, I guess with the failings of uh, neoliberalism, it's easy to hold up Cuba and Venezuela as beacons of hope or even uh, liberation theology. But from my understanding, that also led to things like the Shining Path, and I'm wondering, wondering if you can comment on... Uh, there's also what? Well, it led to oppressive 
organizations like The Shining Path, and I'm wondering if you could comment on their also, um, what's the word, I guess, quelching of dissent that's also happening in these countries. I didn't get that. The path. Not, not just the Shining Path. Oh, the Shining Path movement in Peru. Not just the Shining Path movement, but also what we hear here in Australia about Cuba and Venezuela's oppressive quelching of dissent. Well, this is not true about... I mean, in Cuba, it's a totally different situation, as I pointed out four times tonight. Uh, I can't carry on repeating it. It is a different situation. In Venezuela, <clears throat> you have had the overwhelming bulk of the print media and the television networks against Chavez. Only one television station has not had its renew, uh, license renewed, which is mild, given the fact that this television station had called for a toppling of the elected government, participated in all the coup attempts, and carried out the most vulgar and appalling propaganda. Where do you see television like that in the Western world? In the United States, where all the networks are with Bush and Fox Television is a special propaganda station gifted to him by Rupert Murdoch. In Australia, where the ABC is constantly under pressure to tighten up on space for dissenting views. In Britain, where Blair Sack, the director general of the BBC, won of his own placement for daring to give voice to the opposition in Iraq. So for God's sake, let's have some sense of proportion. Chavez won seven electoral victories in Venezuela despite the total opposition of the media to him. And he doesn't, he's not scared of them. You know, but he hasn't banned any newspapers. He hasn't banned any television stations. Even this station, which didn't have its terrestrial license renewed, has got cable channels. So I don't accept that. The Shining Path in Peru is a totally different story. You know, this sort of group of nutty supporters of Pol Pot in Cambodia, totally removed from any real relationship to the world in which they live, and they're not that important now. This was something which happened in the past. None of us supported it. I never supported uh, uh, groups of that sort who, you know, and, and, and the way they behaved. And when they were first set up, they could actually win some support from the poor peasants, but that support disappeared when people saw how they were operating. So these are three very different things you mentioned, and it's best to understand the complexity of Latin America, and that what is taking place in it today is something which is not pleasing the United States because it's happening democratically. And it's showing the rest of the world that you can come to power through democratic election victories and begin to transform your countries. And if they defeat this, then who knows what will happen the next time people decide to fight back. Just one last question. Uh, oh, one last question. <laughs> uh, I'm from the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, and uh, could you please, please quickly comment on uh, the spillover effect of uh, what's happening in Afghanistan, in our province? You, you know well, that. I mean, the effect of what is happening in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, is obvious, that uh, the religious parties have been able to mobilize support. These were parties who in the past never got more than 5% of the vote. Now they're getting 12 16% of the vote and are in power in the northwest frontier province and, to a certain extent, in Balochistan. That's because the government is totally allied to the West and can't resist it, and the secular parties or the supposedly secular parties, opposition parties, are also totally allied to the United States. And this is a big, big problem. 
which has come up in a number of questions, that when you have things happening which shouldn't be happening, uh, and the parties which should be opposing them don't oppose them, then people gravitate towards parties who are opposing them. Just at the moment they do. And then they suffer as a result of it. So it's not a good situation. And I think the sooner the occupation of Afghanistan is brought to an end, the better, both for Pakistan and for Afghanistan and for that whole region. Tariq Ali will be um, signing books at the Glee Books bookstall in the foyer upstairs uh, immediately following the closure of this meeting. Uh, I think Sydney Ideas is a marvellous series and tonight we've had a real treat. We've been around the world's hotspots, uh, heard about the political and economic interests, but I think also heard a lot about grounds for hope progressive people challenging authoritarianism, trying to make a difference in their own lives, in their own countries, and increasingly linking up internationally. Uh, it is a difficult era, but uh, this has been, in many respects, a very exciting uh, stock take of both the problems and possibilities. So please join me in thanking very much Tariq Ali. Thank you.